Uh, welcome along. Good to see you. Um, we're looking at number three in our series, Heart and Soul. And um, as we said at the start, it's this calling for us as Christians that there will always be more than wherever we're at uh, right now on the journey. So there's going to be challenge over the next few weeks. Jesus says to us, and I don't know how familiar you are with your Bibles and that kind of thing, but there's a couple of couple of sentiments in there, even if you've never been church in your life, that you're going to have, you're going to have heard. So the, the very start, the last verse of 11, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened. I'm going to use this little, this little verse as kind of the, to, to sort of structure the talk. It's, it, was, it just kind of helped me to have something to hang my head upon. So maybe you will do the same when you get back home tonight and you're like, what did he say? You drive home in the car, what did he, what was he on about? Just go back to this verse at the end of the text, end of chapter 11. If you could pop it up, Martin. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke on you, upon you, and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is like his. Let me give it to you in a nutshell, as I often like to do. And sort of hear this. He says, for some, the idea of doing good, and I think this should resonate with us. It should definitely resonate with you if you've been in church for a few years. The idea of doing good can be exhausting, weary, and burdening. Maybe you're correcting yourself. You're going, I can't even let myself think that that might be the case. I'm not going to do that to myself. I think... Part of what Jesus is saying is that doing good, and part of maybe what we'll explore is that doing good gets exhausting. Doing good leaves people in this story, and maybe us, with no peace. And even, and this is the, the warning, doing good, or having good as your primary focus is all you see in life, sometimes can even send you bad. It can even send you bad. So those are the, those are the, he- those are the headings that maybe put over some things. If that's you, if any of, and this is kind of what Jesus is saying to these people, I think, if that's you, then you're doing it wrong. You're getting some of this stuff wrong. And he sort of says in this opening gambit, he kind of invites them. He says, watch me closely. Look at me. Take up my yoke. Take up my teaching. Align yourself with me, study me, and I will, I will show you how this goodness thing really works. I'll take you back to the essence of what it's all about. I'll show you how you can have joy and peace. So, yeah, a couple, a couple of headings. Why doing good gets exhausting. How doing good can send you bad. Why it's critical for you to get to a place where doing good is not killing you. I think that's important. Do you know that way as a Christian you go, it's just really hard. I'm sick, I'm sick of being a nice person. Sick to death. You ever, you ever said that? You're, dead. You're not going to nod now, but have you ever said that? I'm just sick. I feel so soft. I feel so vulnerable. I feel so exposed. I'm sick to death of being forgiving. It's driving me mad. I want to be angry more frequently. <laughs> that kind of thing. Why is it critical for us to get to a place where doing good's not killing us? And why, I think this is what Jesus says in the story that happened on the Sabbath day, 
Why that only really happens when you can know true peace deep within your stomach. It's never going to be a superficial fix, real peace. I think that's one of the things Jesus says over and over again. And it's one of the things that we look for over and over again. Superficial peace is where we head. Jesus says the answer is going to be deep within your gut. And he says also, and this is quite the claim, he says you're only going to get that with me. You're only going to get real peace with me. Other than that, it's going to be superficial and it's going to break down for you. So first point, why doing good can be exhausting. He gives us this call at the start. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. This is a... I don't want to wash past this. This is a beautiful call. I've heard this. been a Christian for ages. Heard this call hundreds of times. Come to me, all of you. Not many people can say this. This is the thing. Not many people can say, come to me, all you are weary, and I will give you rest. Sometimes, I don't know if you have this, when I start to act good, when I do a kindness thing, like I give a homeless person a coffee, or I, 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 look, out, I look after somebody and I say, oh, how are you doing? I'm, I'm immediately aware of the end of my kindness capacity. Do you know what I mean? I'm, I'm immediately thinking, so you see somebody in the street and you go, oh, how are you? Or you help a homeless person. I'm immediately thinking, I've opened the door here. Where the heck is this going to end? Are they going to follow me back home? Are they going to be needing a bed? Jesus looks out at all of Israel, all of the sickness, all of the starving, all of the ills, all of the wickedness, and he can say, knowing he can answer it, come to me, all of you. You can all come to me, and I can give you rest. I look at you lot, and I think, man, or I look, at, I look at the guy on the street and I think, oh, I could maybe help you out for a couple of days, but then I'd have to kick you out because I'd just run out of steam. I'm sorry, it's just the end of me. Jesus can say, he can look at everyone and go, come unto me, all you who are weary, and I can give you real rest. What's that rest going to be? Here, though, when Jesus says, come to me, all you are weary, I think he's got in his mind... He's got everybody in his mind, but I think he's got, it's an special appeal to a bunch of people that he loves, I think. And I know we've read that story a hundred times and we say that's for everybody and it is for everybody. I think Jesus, because of the stories that are around it, is thinking of Israel when he says this. He's seeing weariness and burdened people within Israel. People trying to do good things. Think about it if you're I was thinking about national identities, what it means for you to be, if you're, an, if you're an Irish guy, you meet an Irish guy on holiday, I don't know about you, this is stereotyping in the extreme, but I expect a good joke straight away. I expect some good crack, I expect some good banter. I had the privilege of going to the World Cup and pretending to be Brazilian. I had the Brazilian kit, I was with the Brazilian fans, it was amazing, it was just unbelievable. That It didn't matter if you won or lost, there was just a party going on. They got beat by France as it went, but that didn't matter, you just had this party. Think about God's people, what's their national identity? If you're Irish or if you're Brazilian, I think it gives you a bit of a lift, I don't know where it leaves us, if you're English or British, but if, you are, if you're a Hebrew person, what's your identity? Jesus, God says, rather, God says, be holy because I am holy. That is their national identity. Can you imagine that? 
Can you imagine that over you all the time? So, you know, as soon as you are a couple of years old, your mum and dad are banging through the Torah, the law, and you're learning commands. You've got commands coming out your nose. Do you know what I mean? You're just reeling this stuff off. This is your story, this pressure to be holy. And what, what Israel did, because they took it so seriously, is they, and they wanted to be holy and remain holy, they invented even more laws. So these extra books that they, they got just so they didn't get this stuff wrong. So any, any law that said don't, for example, we're going to look at the Sabbath, don't work on the Sabbath, they added a bunch of laws around it because they thought we just want to get this right. And as Jesus walks around, he sees a nation that, that are just exhausted. They're just burdened. They're just weary of doing good. And it's become... It's become a bind. It's become a chore. It's become something, oh man, I've got to do this. And, it's, and they're exhausted with it. That is what he sees because, because the law hangs around their neck, but as well because, because the leaders and the teachers in Israel were saying, right, we're just going to need, in order to get this right, we're going to have to give you more laws to make sure we get this holiness deal right. We're going to have to really know it inside out. It is, I think, a very human thing to do. You've got the ideal, and the Hebrew people had this ideal of God, but because we're not perfect, because people mess things up, you've got to legislate to achieve the ideal. That's what they do. They write these billions of laws down. They try and learn them inside out. They add more and more laws. You've got to legislate to achieve the ideal. And in legislating, you make it impossible for the ideal to really be authentic. So it becomes wearisome. So for an example, we're dealing with teachers in the story that we're going to look at. Teachers. I, don't, I know a few teachers. don't know lots of teachers, but I know a few teachers. And it is, in a sense, because I, I fancy a little bit. fancy the idea of going into teaching a little bit. It is one of those jobs where there is that, it's this perfect ideal. Maybe you, maybe you watch the... You watch, the, there's an advert on the TV that, you know, exalts the virtues of teaching and it says, come and be a teacher, change somebody's life, you know, and there's a little girl that makes her way through school. Have you seen that advert? And she ends up being, you know, she ends up getting a career and all the rest of it. And there's this opportunity to give back. There's all these, like, beautiful ideals. You can make a difference in the world. But because, I think this is why it is, and I get why we do it, but because we're not perfect, because the world's not perfect, because teachers have off days or off weeks or off years or kids can be really, really bad. We legislate this thing to death. I really feel for our teachers, it's this beautiful thing, but because of the world we live in, you've got like a million bits of red tape you've got to get right. You've got to get your lesson structured right. There's this rigid national curriculum. There's DBSs. There's like a million things that I don't know about. It's legislated beyond belief. And you have... This beautiful profession that is teaching, and you get teachers, I'm guessing, that wake up some mornings and, and remember back to this ideal that was at the start and go, oh, I just wish, I wish some days I could just teach. I wish some days I could just give a bit back. And I get it. I get why it exists. But sometimes, in over-legislating for things, we lose the ideal. That's what happens in Israel, I think, at this time. There's, Jesus walks around Israel and there's this bunch of people, God's people, 
who've experienced the reality, the awesome, mind-blowing reality of God amongst them, and have kind of somehow legislated it to death, forgotten about it, and it's become a burden to them. I think, and I get it, as we go through our Christian lives, Christian practices, the stuff that we do, the rhythm of like the church, what people like me tell you to do, books that you read, opinions that you form, history, the do's and the don'ts of the faith. You look at other people, he should be doing that, he shouldn't be doing this. You get all like that. We get, we get a bit red tapey as Christians. We get a bit legislated, I think. And I think Jesus would say to us, come to me, all you who have gotten fed up with what it means to be good. Come to me, all you who are weary. And I think he would take us back to a place like the start of your teaching journey when you look at it with the ideals and you go, yeah, I'm going to make a difference. Do you remember, for those of you who are saved, there might well have been a point in your life where you, and I don't know what it is now, this is certainly how it is for me. The journey of faith comes up and down, that sort of thing. But there was a point in your life where you looked and you recognized somewhere where you were, you recognized the sin in your life, and you came to this point where you had a faith in this great God, and it was just this mind-blowing moment. Oh, man, I'm sinful, and the world is a bit sinful. We're all a bit wrong, and yet God saved me from that. I think Jesus, when he comes back here, he looks at the people all covered by legislation, and he said, oh, come to me. I need to get you back to the heart of this story. So we're going we're gonna to look quick at a story. And I see that time is passing. We're going to look quick at a story, and we're going to see how Jesus brings people back, particularly the teachers back. So it's on the Sabbath day. We know about the Sabbath day. It's this beautiful ideal that God has. You can rest like I did on the seventh day. You can have that. You can know what it's like to know me, know that I'm in control of everything. So there's laws that get us there, like don't work, don't do too much stuff, but they're to get us to this point where we just can rest completely in God. And what had happened to the Sabbath day is that they'd just been legislated to death, just been written about and written about and written about and the purpose of it and the function of it and the joy of it had just gone. So there's one incident. We're going to look at the incidents now. If you can skip on the text. At that time, Jesus went through the cornfields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry and began to pick some ears of corn and eat them. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath. And the the Pharisees are watching in, and they go, gotcha. We've gotcha. You've done something wrong. There's another story. I don't know if you could skip the text on. I if I can find the verses in front of me here. Don't have the reading. Anyway, the next, the next story, Jesus goes into the synagogue, and there's a guy, remember in the reading, there's a guy there with the shriveled hand. And, and there's this moment, and all the Pharisees are watching in, and there's this moment where Jesus heals this guy. So 
So it's the Sabbath day, it's in the temple, everybody's watching, Jesus heals the guy. Second, we reach, we reach, so we've got the story laid out before us. We reach the second point in the talk here, I think. How doing good can send you bad. What I always think when I think of these Pharisees, and I always, I guess the strongest sense of them I have is when they're on the cross, when they're, when they're shouting at Jesus on the cross, and I think to myself, what happened to you guys? Like, really, what happened to get you to a place where you were so angry that you wanted to kill somebody? What, what, what gets you there? It's kind of the question that we're stirred to ask all sort of pantomime baddies, aren't we? What, you know, whenever you watch a pantomime or a film, you don't just get to see the baddie, you kind of got to go, how did, how did he get here? How did, how did this happen to him? Where, where I used to live uh, when I was a boy growing up, Cliff Street, um, Albert and Mary lived to the right. Um, Paul and Jane on our left, we had good neighbors all the way around. And there was a lady we used to refer to as grot bags, as children. We referred to her as grot bags. And this wasn't an endearing title that we gave her. We used to play football in the square in the middle, and the balls occasionally would go in her garden. They would flip over into her garden, and we didn't see much of her. The only little bit we saw of her, she'd come out and she'd grab the balls, and she'd take them. Sometimes she would burst them in front of us. Can you imagine? They were all airflow footballs. Can you imagine the kind of person that would do that? One day, heroically, a young lad called Topper, the coolest lad on the street, ran into her back garden and stole all the balls back. It was an incredible moment. But my question always about this lady and the Pharisees was, how do you, what, what happens to get you here, to this place? What happens to get you to this junction in your life? And the reality, I think, about the Pharisees, the lesson for us about the Pharisees is, is we could be that easy, I don't want to say it, but we could be that easy. And what we need to do with them, characters like this in the Bible, is check ourselves against the kind of things that they do. Because real easy, we can go, oh man, I could do that. So I'm going to read out in the story what these Pharisees do. And what happened when I sort of looked through this, I got to the point where I was thinking, oh man, I do that. These are the baddies. Do you know that moment when you realize there's a great Mitchell and Webb uh, sketch I think it's great. I think it's really funny. They're comedians, and I'm looking around, and nobody knows who Mitchell and Webb are. And the start of the sketch, it looks like they've, they're all, they're the, you know, they talk to themselves like they're the goodies, and then they look at each other, and they realize they've got little mustaches and evil hats, and they look at each other and they go, I think we might be the baddies. When there's that moment in your life where you realize, oh, man, I think the Bible in this story gets us to check ourselves and go, and you really need to look at what direction you're going in. So the first thing that I think that these Pharisees do is they misuse their energies. Think about, think about how much stuff these guys know. They're loaded with information, good information, but they are keener. I mean, think about where they are. They followed Jesus to the cornfield. They could be going and, I don't know, raising money for the poor. They could be doing whatever they wanted, but they've just determined to just follow Jesus. And in following Jesus, they're not listening to Jesus. They want to pick fault in what he's doing. They're just totally misusing their energies. You ever, you ever realize that's, that's the kind of thing you do? 
you, you think, oh, I've, I've keep coming along to church every week, I've got all this stuff that I know, but actually the reality of my faith is often I'm looking at other people and getting, just getting annoyed with them and just spending all my time just doing that kind of thing. The other thing that they do is that they lose compassion. How bad a place are you in when there's a guy with a shriveled hand and a man who can fix him, who can make him whole, and your whole focus is just on the legalities of whether that's right or wrong. How horrible a spot, how warped a position are you if that's where your head is at? And that happens to us sometimes, doesn't it? With these Christians who've had this enlightenment about who God is, and yet half the time we can manage to remain compassionless. That's kind of the question, is it? How, how could they possess so much knowledge and yet end up being in a spot where, I think at the end of the text it says, they were looking for ways that they could kill him. How can you... How can you have studied God's word all that while? How could you know it inside out so you can teach it to somebody and yet you can be in such a wrong place? One of the sayings that uh, explorers use is that you can have as many maps as you want. If your compass is even a degree out, you're going to end up down a ditch or somewhere like that. It's just like that for us as Christians, I think. If our hearts... If all we've got is stuff that we know, if all we've got is routine, but our hearts are skewed, our hearts are looking for the bad in others the whole time, our hearts are angry the whole time, then we can end up way off. So Jesus looks at these teachers and he says, I need to get these people back. So this is point three. So we're getting there. We're nearly over the line. Why it's critical to get to a place where doing good is not killing you. I think that's what we want. Because we do get to this spot, I get to this spot where I'm like, I'm just fed up of being good. I'm just, I don't want to do that anymore. It's, it's exhausting me. I'm, I'm weary of it. Why it's critical to get to a place where doing good's not killing you, and why that's got to come from the depths of you, not be a routine that you follow. So Jesus sees these teachers of the law, and he makes two appeals, I think. I think he goes in first, he says, I need to try and talk to their heads. And then after that, he goes in for an appeal to the heart. So the first one he says, and it's verse 3, Remember what David did when he and his companions were hungry? He entered the house of God, and he and his companions ate the consecrated bread, which was not lawful for them to do, only the priests. He shows them, in a couple of stories, that the specifics of the law are outweighed by the principle of the law. He says, remember David? Remember that guy that was appointed king when he was younger? The guy that was on that journey? The guy that I sought out? The guy that was going to be the revelation to all of the world? A little bit. Everyone was going to see David, see David and see me. My plan, my purposes. Would you remember on his way to becoming king when he ran into trouble and he had to hide out in the temple and all of his men were starving? Do you remember when they ate the bread and they actually technically broke the law, is the issue that they ate the bread? Is that the issue? Or is the issue that David went on to eat and become king? See, 
Jesus gets them to think about the fact that all these logistics, all these technicalities that they hold on to, if they're not heading towards the bigger purposes of God's law, then what on earth are they doing? So he appeals to the head, a story they know, so all the Pharisees can go, oh yeah, forgot about that one, you got me. Then he appeals to the heart. If any of you has a sheep and it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will you not take hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable is a person than a sheep? And as he's telling the Pharisees this story, and this is what Jesus does, he takes us to a place. As he's telling the Pharisees this story, the guy with the shriveled hand, he stood right there next to him. You see the journey Jesus takes us on? The start of the Sabbath day, we're all talking about legislation, we're all talking about the law and getting to the bottom of what it means, and Jesus takes us through the Sabbath day, and he gets us to a place, he gets the Pharisees and the Sadducees to a place where they're confronted with the very reality of who God is. There's a guy with a shriveled hand who could be changed and saved and have his life restored. We get to see God in the room. That's the journey that we go on. He takes these teachers. Remember we were thinking about teachers at the start. Teachers who've lost, and and that's what they are, the Pharisees and the Sadducees, they're teachers. And they are teachers who maybe like teachers around today have lost the heart of their job. They just go, man, I just missed that. And he looks at them and he says, I need to get them back to the essence of their job. This is what he does. He takes them back, he takes them, and it's an emotive moment. It's a Sabbath day's journey, and at the end of the day's journey, they're left with the reality of who God is. This man who can be healed. I don't know, and I know how this stuff works for you in your lives. Our journey as Christians, it can be like And I get the legislation bit, I get the red tape bit, I think we need it. We need to come along, we need to read the book, we need to stay in touch with the rules, we need to hold to the rules, we need to adhere to the rules, we need to be precious about the rules. But wherever wherever you are along that road, and some of you will just be rules and holding on to rules as I am sometimes, and some of you are a bit, bit further down the line, wherever you are along that point of the road, Jesus wants to take you to the spot where you see exactly what it's all about. He wants to get you back to that place. Maybe that place you were at where you, were, where you first came to faith, where you saw yourself exactly how you were, where you saw the sin in your life and you saw how holy God was and you saw the power of God and you saw the intention of God throughout the world and you were like, oh yes, this is amazing. Maybe you've been a Christian for a few years and you're like, oh, I just need to keep going that's getting me through. I just need to keep in at my Bible. I just need to do this. I need to do that. And to a certain extent, you do. But wherever you are along that way, Jesus wants to grab you and he wants to stick you in front of the guy with the shriveled hand and say, look what I can do. That's, that's what he does. And do you see where it leaves these Pharisees? He strips them away. He strips every part of their being away apart from their motive that's what Jesus does so they're there thinking it's all about law 
and rules and holding to law and rules and wanting to debate law and rules. And Jesus says, look, there's a guy here with a shriveled hand. I can fix him. And their motives are completely exposed. Our endeavors for good, this is a truth, our endeavors for good will always be superseded by our motives. That's kind of a hard truth, and whatever it is you want to do for God, somewhere down the line, your sanctification journey, your relationship with God journey, what the teachings of God will do to you will leave you completely exposed. And all that will matter is what resides deep down in your heart and soul. That's all that will be there. That's all that will be seen. Everything else, all the superficial stuff, as you go along the journey, will get stripped away. Point four, and we're finished. How to get real peace in your soul and why it only comes from Jesus. Come to me, all you are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest for your souls. What does Jesus say, essentially, when you strip it all back down? Essentially, I think he's saying to us, my rest is better than your rest. That's what he says to humanity. That's what he says to the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the teachers of the laws. That's what he said to people making their way through life. That's what he looks at us and says to us he, as, we, as we follow along with the pattern of the world. He says, my rest is better than your rest. And I think our rest was similar to the rest of the Sadducees and the Pharisees. The Sadducees and the Pharisees took the law and they tried to kind of ring fence it. In order to keep the Sabbath, they needed to add a bunch of laws on if if we're, going to do, if we're going to do it, we need to do it like that. We need, to, we, need to, we need to get right on it and totally ring fence it in. And in terms of how we approach rest, I think we do a similar kind of thing. We try and put walls around ourselves and say, this will give me a bit of a rest. So when you, we go on holiday as far away as we can afford to go from the people who might bother us, and then we put it in our calendar, we put a big circle around it and say, that is my rest time. And, we, and as we put the circle around it, we're going, nobody's going to bother me, then I'm going to get away then I'm very blessed at the moment as we've moved house we've got, I've got an ensuite bathroom it's my favorite thing in the whole wide world it really is and I've put in in the shower in the ensuite I've, I've got the I can have my music in the shower and I can shut the shower door and I can lock the I'm physically doing it in my head now I can lock the ensuite door and I can shut my bedroom door and I can separate myself off from nobody can get near me when it's like that I am just I can put my walls up and I can go, ah, this is rest. That is the rest that we have as human beings. The problem with it is somebody, somebody always breaks it down. Somebody can always get in and spoil it with the rest that we've got. Somebody can always say, oh, you can't go on this holiday or you can't do that or I'll come with you on holiday or whatever else it is. You know, that's the kind of thing that happens with our rest. That is not the rest that Jesus offers here. Jesus says, my rest it's better than that. And I think, I think the penny drops for a few people as to what that rest is as he heals the guy with the withered hand. They see in Jesus God. They see in Jesus the creator of the world. They see in Jesus somebody who controls everything. So I think you've got a bunch of people in that temple in that day. Some people left without any peace and one or two people would have seen what Jesus did and they would have realized that his peace is not shutting out the world it's harmony with the guy who created the whole world that is what God's 
peace is. So we don't need to, in that sense, shut ourselves in. We need to know that the guy who made the planets is our friend. The guy who conquered death is our friend. We don't shut the universe out. We sit in, and this sounds a bit spacey, but we sit in perfect harmony with it. If we are saved by God, this place makes loads more sense. That is our peace. That is our gift from God. If you're exhausted, if you're exhausted of doing good, if you realize the pressure of doing good has turned you into a hater, there's a journey for you with God back towards the deepest motivations of your heart and soul. And if you find God there, then you'll have peace.